Welcome to the Market Cuddle, episode five. I'm Gary, and I'm joined by Philip. So welcome to this investing podcast. Today's podcast, we're going to try and focus on lump sum investing, or like what we class as drip feed investing, just how to put your money to work into some sort of investment vehicle. In a previous episode, if you've not listened to that one, we were talking about different types of investing vehicles, which we will perhaps just recap quickly on that. So yeah, I think Philip, do you want to just talk about those investing vehicles that we talked about last time in terms of the funds yeah we're not talking about what we class platforms which is how you buy the funds yeah which i think is a subject perhaps of another episode where we'll look at those and i think that might be might be quite fun so yeah do you want to just take us through those those different types of funds quickly yeah so when you got the first ones if you look at the big ones you can buy individual shares of individual companies so often referred to as equities shares or securities the other things you can invest in are bonds whether they corporate or governments but often if you want to be diversified unless you've got an awful lot of money you can't really do that so you what you tend to buy is one of the collective investment schemes which then allows you to have a little bit of lots of companies or lots of bonds to make you diversified. Now they break down into two main types. Those that are called open-ended and those that are called closed-ended investment schemes. The open-ended investment schemes, terms you'll probably hear are unit trusts in the UK or open-ended investment companies, OEICs. Um, these are more common names within the European Union, but they're effectively the same thing. These are where you invest in a small trust company who then buys the underlying shares into it. So every pound that you give them, they then go and invest. Every pound you pull out, they have to sell something to give you back the money. Other ones that are like open-ended investment schemes are exchange traded funds, ETFs. They're very similar, but there you buy, instead of paying your money directly to this investment scheme company, you actually pay the money, you buy and sell them off the stock exchange. But once they've given the money, they then go and buy more shares. And when you sell the share on the stock exchange, they then go and sell the underlying assets to give you back the money. The other ones, which are closed-end investment vehicles, are quite different. These are companies in their own right listed on the stock market. So you have an initial public offering where you gain the money from the investors, they will then go and invest that money. But unlike open-ended investment companies, when you want to get your money out, you just sell your shares in that company to anyone else on the stock market. The fund manager hasn't got to go and sell parts of the companies invested on your behalf to give you back the money. So there's no forced sales in a panic or anything like that. So Mm -hmm. things that are very liquid, this type of closed-end investment vehicle can be much, much safer. So there's no panic buying or where you have very liquid items such as the Woodford funds have recently experienced. Now, the names for those type is investment trusts which are very very famous and very very old in the UK and these were founded in the late Victorian period the 1870s 1880s and the other ones are venture capital trusts or private equity trusts okay so that's great and, and as I say if you want to go into more detail around that I'd encourage you to look at the previous episode on on those it was interesting actually Philip I got a question this week about how I think there was an impression for, from somebody who I was talking to that investment trusts are illiquid i.e. you can't get your money out and I'd said to them, you know, that actually, as you said, no, you do, just like any company that you would buy, shares you would buy in a company, you can swap those around as easily as investment yes. trusts. And actually, therefore, they're quite liquid. And the problem um, comes with this name. And I found it when I first started investing years ago. Investment trusts and unit trusts sound very similar, but yet they're totally different. Mm-hmm. An investment trust as a stock market listed vehicle company in its own right. When you decide you want to sell it, you're selling the share of that part of that investment to somebody else. So sometimes you can sell it at a profit or a 
loss to the actual underlying asset values of the things they've invested in. Whereas a unit trust, it just goes into a pooled investment fund where they go and buy more of that, more of that company. And when you sell it, they've got to sell some of it to give it back to you. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's not a. So when they say close ended, what they mean is the amount invested is fixed. And when they mean open ended, it means it can expand or contract depending on whether people want to take their money in or out. Mm-hmm. But it's unfortunate because of the historic names we've used that people get confused. Well, that's right. I think the investment trusts, in my experience, have been they're actually more liquid or easier to buy and sell than and quicker in that sense than some of the bond funds oh, yeah. where you have to wait for that deal to go off and be negotiated. And you might be waiting 24 hours, whereas actually with investment trusts, you can probably sell that day and the money will be in your account that yes. day to reinvest. Maybe not to extract, but certainly to reinvest. Yeah. And we'll go into my, another episode. We'll go into more detail because there's fundamental differences of how they trade. And we can go through the full risks and opportunities and why when some are better than others um, at another date because that's a whole podcast on its own. Okay, great. So that's, a, that's one to look forward to, I expect. Talking about investing then, so we've picked a, an investment vehicle or a, a company that we want to buy. Assuming I've got you know a salary coming in and I've got a little bit each month that I want to put into a platform where I can go and buy shares. What, what's the best way of using that money in that scenario? Do you right. think? Okay, so just to put it into perspective, put some number, figures on what small means and this is mainly to help explain what you can and can't do or what's cost effective to invest in. So if we're looking at when we're saying small, we're talking at something around about a couple of pounds to say, a couple of hundred pounds, say 500 pounds per month. That's small. When you're in that sort of size, it's not really cost effective to go and buy individual shares because of the trading costs eat up in a lot of the fund value there. So that means individual shares, ETS, exchange traded funds and investment trusts or any other closed investment vehicle which are share based are just too expensive to buy. So realistically, you're pretty much only open to unit trusts and OEICs, open-ended investment companies. And the best way is doing that, you can buy lump sums of them, depending on who your provider is, it's a maybe 50 to 100 pound a go as a lump sum, or you can do it per month and you set up a direct debit and do it every month where you might be able to get to somewhere between the minimum amount being 10 to 25 pound a month. But over time that allows you to get going, you're buying a, a diversified pool of investments. But unfortunately at that size, that's your only option realistically. Okay, so I think what you're saying is we could accumulate that monthly amount and then buy what we want to buy so we could wait be patient and yes. buy in bigger lumps I guess albeit we can invest every month a smaller amount so what about let's say we've got a slightly bigger amount of money we might have inherited it just come across this slightly bigger amount okay. of money we've, we didn't we didn't know we had it you know it was trapped under something heavy or whatever so what are, what are the better options then with that Okay, say you've got a sum of money, say three, four thousand pounds in size. There are a few more options now. Because you're in that sort of several K, several thousands of pounds worth of value, shares or investment schemes that are by shares are now cost effective. So you could buy an individual share and make it cost effective, but that's only one share, so it's not very diversified. But you could buy exchange traded funds, ETFs, and the trading costs for those are now probably reasonably um, cost effective. Investment trusts now also coming in, they're now the trading costs for them are now probably quite reasonable or you could still also go and buy unit trusts and OECIs okay so that's your kind of slightly larger amount of money let's assume I come into a big lump of money what's the best thing to do with that so just to put in context when we're saying big lump of money we're saying ten thousand pounds or much much more this point here you can buy individual shares particularly if it's a lot more than ten thousand pounds and be reasonably diversified at a reasonable cost you can be your own funding manager and do it yourself you can buy any of the sort of investment opportunities where it's investment trust 
trusts, exchange traded funds, unit trusts, any of those, and they'd be reasonably competitive against each other. So you've got lots and lots. Basically, everything now is in is cost effective for you to buy in that sort of size. Okay, great. So sounds like just in summary, then if I've got a small amount, I want to drip feed. Let's call it a small amount into a platform to invest in something. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. Be a little bit every month. You can accumulate it and buy what you want to buy. I've got a slightly larger amount of money. I can just probably then focus on shares rather than funds. Let's say in terms of ETFs. And then with a bigger amount of money, again, I can buy companies or investment trusts because I'm at the right scale. Is that a fair summary? Your face is telling me it's not. No, no. So let me summarise. If you only have a small amount of money to invest as lump sum or uh, regularly, you, you're pretty much left with unit trusts and open-ended investment vehicles, OECIs, as your only really cost-effective source. When you've got a bit more money, a couple of thousand pounds worth, you can buy collective investment vehicles uh, in funds, which are share-based, such as ETFs or investment trusts, and they'll be cost-effective. You could buy an individual company via its shares and be cost-effective, but then you're very undiversified because it's only one company. When you get to much, much bigger sums of money, tens of thousands of pounds plus, you can buy anything and they'll all be cost-effective. You can even start buying individual shares and be start being reasonably diverse because you're buying several different companies. But the other thing that's worth mentioning then, once you've done that, is um, you also want to maximise your tax allowances each year that you use. In the UK, you've got your ISA allowance, which stands for Individual Savings Account. So where once it's inside there, you don't have to pay any tax, UK tax on capital or income or dividends generated from it. Okay, and that's and that's taxed <clears> in the way in and the way out? You don't get taxed for putting it in there? With an ISA, the income you're using to go into it has been taxed for income purposes because of what you've earned elsewhere. But when the investment inside, any dividends that the investment inside it generates is tax-free and any capital gains it generates inside is tax-free to UK taxes. Yeah, it's worth saying neither of us are tax accountants, but it's worth making that point because I think for ISAs are quite a, ta- a tax-efficient vehicle for investing and given the fact that probably the money we're putting it in has already been taxed because we've earned it let's say unless we've been given it but it's more likely we've earned it so we've already been taxed on the way in essentially but the platform itself putting that money in there you're not going to get charged and getting it out in the future is then tax free at the moment at least is tax free yes which is kind of a nice the Chancellor may decide to change the rules of the next budget which is always his prerogative but as we stand today he hasn't so it's tax free and the way out so the important thing there is even if you only have a small amount of money to invest or uh, as a lump sum or a small amount of money to invest every month it's probably best to utilize that in an ISA you know tax allowance to use that up so even if you're only buying unit trusts because you can only afford to invest 50 pound a month and buying unit trusts that's still a very good way for long-term savings that's how I started out when I started back in 2007 for many years I just bought unit trusts every month with an ISA account which allowed me to build up quite a large sum of money that then made it cost effective to go buy other things yeah so it's the same same adage of saving like you would in a bank account but you can use the platform where you buy your shares to do the same thing and accumulate it essentially yes. ready to buy what you want to buy so I think that's a, that's a good a good approach it's, and I guess where the individual savings account the IC you talked about there's quite a reasonable size allowance on that each year which you know most people are not going to meet no. that maximum so all of your as we said on the, on the small side if you are saving every month into that account you're not going to hit your limit anyway are you you're no. not going to have to have 
that, that's not going to cause anybody a problem unless they they are putting away a lot the largest sums of money which, which we've and to put it into context in the uh, the current this current financial year tax year the amount you can put into a stocks and shares ISA and a cash ISA together is £20,000 okay. and it's so, quite challenging to put that in every year so yeah on the, on a, on the UK's average salary therefore you're not going to probably be saving that kind of that kind of money no okay. and I struggle to maximum to utilise that every year but if mm-hmm. you don't use it you lose it and you that year you can't re-put in more in the future because you didn't put it in last year yeah absolutely so it's probably worth saying then that on the, on the smaller side if you're accumulating the other option you've got outside of company pensions is a self-invested pension plan which works fairly similarly to an ISA in terms of you can drip feed monthly can, amounts into that it is a pension plan so it's mm-hmm. it's all it, the only difference between an, a SIP a self-invested pension plan is the things you can put in it when you're unless you're uh, basically because you're running it by law you could invest a lot of things into that not all providers off give that opportunities and these are different compared to personal pensions where you have very limited choices with a SIP you can invest in any listed share any listed investment trust any regulated unit trust home and abroad you could technically put commercial property into it it's expensive to do that you can uh, other securities bonds almost everything in fact, you can probably put more types of investment into it than you can into an ISA. Okay. So, I, you know, we just say we'd encourage people if they're looking to put some money away is to have a look at what they've got in terms of pension already, whether through their employer or if they're self-employed or, or what have you, they, they do that themselves. Or don't forget, you've got this ISA allowance, which essentially is a good way of, I guess the best way of describing that is to tax wrapper your money so that nobody comes and taxes it again as, you, as you're uh, investing it. So if we take another option, so we take the one where maybe you have got a large sum of money you can invest. So mm-hmm. we say we're saying something of the order of say 10k of that sort of size quite a large lump of money. Yeah. If we think about what sort of options do you actually have? Do you want to, sh- do you want to basically invest it all in one go? Well if you've got it you might as well right? Well you can do that but this if you think about like we talked about in the fall, what's the risks of doing that? Now some people get quite concerned the fact that have I actually invested at the bottom of the market? What happens if it goes down a bit further? They feel anxious about that. Mm-hmm. So some of the things you can do instead of doing it in one lump you could break it down into maybe four smaller lumps and do it once a quarter of the year every three months or you could break it down into 12 pieces and do it once a month and effectively a bit like you do it it's a bigger chunk of your monthly investments and what happens there is every day the, mar- the market uh, decides whether it's a bit higher a bit lower than it was before and so therefore but you're putting in the same amount each month and effectively some months you buy more of the investment and other months you buy less of the investment so over that period you're investing it it's averaged out so it's often called dollar cost averaging or cost pound averaging in the UK okay so you're yeah so you're averaging it into the market and as you say you know if the market's down on a day actually that's that's good when you're buying in and if it's up another month or another another time you buy so be it but you overall whatever those let's say you do it every month you've got the average of 12 months price so if it's averaging up generally you've not paid the top price and you've not paid the bottom price all the time okay so you what you're saying there i guess is whether you've got a, a little bit of money going in or a large sum of money you could do you could do that style with both yes it just means if you've got time and patience to do so so does that then impact on because you said earlier on there's charges and things related to different funds how does that affect your fees right and this is where so we say the open-ended investment schemes such as unit trusts 
and OECIs, they charge as a percentage of what you're putting in. So therefore, that's why it makes them as a very small, very cost effective, because it's your, your management charges and your transaction charge is going to be a percent, a 1%, shall we say. Whereas the other things, when you're buying shares, you have the actual transaction cost to buy the shares. Now, just taking the example of some of the mid-range stockbrokers, uh, online stockbrokers, such as Hargreaves Lansdowne, Charles Stanley Direct, there you're charging, say, something around about 10, 11 pound per trade. They're not the cheapest, but they're not the most expensive. They're sort of average at those sort of costs. So that's a fixed cost. So if you're buying uh, 10,000 pounds worth of shares, dividing your cost of 10 pound is divided over that. So therefore you've got your 10 pounds, your cost against the 10,000 pounds of what you're buying. But if you're only buying 100 pounds, that 10 pounds is now a very large percentage of what you're actually trying to buy. So it's just not cost effective. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Whereas if you're- Even I could do that maths. That's yeah. a lot of money to trade. And that's where yeah. it comes from. When you're buying things that are share, when you're actually buying and selling share types, such as investment trusts, exchange traded funds, venture capital trusts, of that, or individual companies, there's sort of minimum size you want to trade where the trading costs don't become prohibitive. Trading costs to the broker is only one of the costs. You take the £10 when you buy it and you pay it £10 when you sell it. There's another one when you buy it in the UK, if you're buying UK shares, is called stamp duty, also known as a Tobin tax, which is a transaction tax. So 0.5% of that transaction you pay in tax. So you pay £100, your transaction tax of of the stamp duty will be 0.5 of that, which will be 50p. If you do 100,000, it's a lot of money, but it's scaled, so it's you pay that regardless of percentage fee. Okay, so but that yeah, so that's regardless of the provider you go for for, for platform, you're going to be paying that tax because yeah. it's within the UK. But that just suggests then that you've got to take into consideration when you see a share you want to. Let's assume we're going to buy a share that's that's costing you a pound. It looks like the price of the share is a pound. By the time you've added in the stamp duty and the cost to trade that on the way in and on the way out with the buying and selling of that, that share is not going to cost you a pound to buy, is it? No. It's going to be more than that. So, so we that's take... something to bear in mind, I guess. Just there are not hidden costs, additional costs that are going to be more than what, you know, if you're looking at a, a share price on, you know, Google or wherever you're looking, you pay more, more that. to that. So the share's got to go up in value for you to get out for a profit. That's right. Which and... probably sounds obvious, but because you've got the costs on top of it. So have you got a, an example then? We've been talking about the different sizes of money have you got examples of how that cost influences those sums of money yes what I've got here as an example is we're going to try we're going to buy a share and we're going to buy £100 worth of share in one example and the other example we're going to buy £5,000 of that company so in both cases we're going to go through a stockbroker the stockbroking fee is going to be £10 for the trade now what you have to know is you pay your stockbroking fee when you buy and when you sell but stamp duty which is 0.5% of the to- of the transaction of the trade is only paid when you buy, not when you sell. In the UK, other countries, you buy and sell, you, you, it gets charged when you buy and when you sell. So with a £100 trade example, so we have a share, which is £1 per share, or 100 pennies per share, which we're going to quote it in this way, and we're going to buy 100 off. That gives us a £100 trade. We have our stamp duty, which is 0.5% of our trade, so that is 50p in this case, and we have our stockbroking fee, which is £10, which brings the total to £110.50, and when we divide that by 100, that gives us our price per share just to buy, which is 110.5 pence per share. So that's, you've lost immediately 10% just to buy at that size. Now when we come to sell, 
we've got another £10 stockbroking fee, which we have to get add on to that £110.50p, which then brings it up to £120.50p. So we have to make £120.50p to break even on £100 originally. So we divide that by 100, and that will then give us 120.5 pence per share. So as you can see, when you see these numbers, the shares have to make a return of 20.5% just to break even when you're buying and selling at such a small volume. And the reason there is your fixed cost, which is your stockbroking fee, dominates. It just dominates all your costs. Now we move to the next example. We're gonna buy 5,000 pounds worth of of the same shares. So now they're still one pound, so they're still 100 pennies a share, but this time I'm buying 5,000 of them, so I've just paid 5,000 pounds. My stockbroking fee is still 10 pounds, because it's per trade. Stamp duty this time, which is 0.5% of my 5,000 pounds, is 25 pounds. So my total costs to buy the shares is the 10 pound stockbroking fee, plus the 25 pound stamp duty, so that's 35 pounds. So it's cost me £5,035, which when I divide it by 5,000, gives me 100.7 pence per share. So effectively, I need to make 0.7% just to break even from just buying it. Now, when I come to sell it, I still have to pay my £10 stockbroking fee, but there's no stamp duty to pay because I'm selling it. So our total trading cost selling is £10. So we add the £10 to the £5,035 which brings us a grand total of 5,045. So when you divide that by 5,000 shares, you get 100.9 pence per share. So as you see, the share price has got to rise by just under one pence per share to break even, which is just under 1%, so it's 0.9%. The shares have to increase to break even. So as you can see, it's a big difference. Now, if I was to buy much, much bigger sums, eventually the sort of cost of transaction will even itself out to be the stamp duty. It'll be ever so fractionally higher than the stamp duty, because the fixed costs, which is stockbroking costs, get less and less important because it's driven more and more by this fixed 0.5%. So the bigger the trading volume you have, the lower and lower your transaction costs. And this is the thing where it comes to going fixed costs against variable costs. And this is one of the reasons why unit trusts, when you're small, is so good because you've just got a fixed percentage cost to transact, not a fixed monetary cost. And that's why when you're buying shares or share type investment funds, such as unit trusts or ETFs, I would generally say you're in the several thousands of pounds as a minimum before your transaction costs become reasonable so they're in the one to two percent territory and that's just to give you a rough example of what it costs because you can get slightly better stockbroking fees than 10 pound from certain stockbrokers I can think of you can also do a lot worse than that because I also know other stockbrokers will charge you a lot more so no that's a I was gonna say that's a good example but it's actually a horrible example because it shows you the massive shift in stock price that you need when you're trading at small numbers you know fundamentally Fundamentally, you're talking about, you know, let's say a 1% shift in the £5,000 trade, uh, which you might well see, in, you know, in a in a day on the stock market, certainly within the week, whereas a 20% change in the share price, you might be lucky to see that in a year. If that happens in a day, it's generally the stock price is crashing because there's some, there's some profits warning. Generally, you don't see them move that much, even in a week. No, I mean, 20% is a <clears> large, you know, a, a, a share that is a, a pound in value to get it to £1.20, you know, you'd be quite pleased with that increase over the course of a year yeah now okay for long-term investors you could argue that's not a major problem but again you've waited a year to break even mm. not to make a profit but to break even so that's uh and this yeah, is it's, 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 it is a good example to just perhaps 
remind people that when they are using a stockbroker or a platform to to buy and sell these stocks or funds that you need to be aware of the fees yes and this is another one I found is when I was starting out because I didn't have huge I didn't have several thousands of pounds to buy and sell at any one time it just was not worth even considering investment trusts even though investment trusts have lots of good advantages for them I just wasn't at scale that it's even worth considering or ETFs um, and I just went straight for the unit trust because at my, the size I was the right cost effective answer was that and depending on where you are depends on what is the most cost effective solution for you and it changes over time it's not a fixed one and by the time you actually save more the options of what maybe is the best thing and what is the most cost effective changes with you yeah and I suppose there's been a quite a lot of talk you, know, you talked about dollar cost averaging versus pound cost averaging which is the same same thing essentially we just tend to hear more about dollar cost averaging because we, we, we tend to see a lot more investment information and advice coming from the US than we do from the from the UK and in the US there's been a lot of talk about their platforms out there are going fee free when we say fee free we're talking about the the stockbroker fee that you talked about not necessarily whatever's going on with their equivalent of, of stamp duty and their taxation which which is kind of beyond the scope of what we're thinking about but but for me if you are going to drip feed you know are, are we in a position at the moment are there any tricks or tunes you can play with lowering those fees yes there are now this is something we'll cover in a future episode where we go more into details of different platforms different providers and what they charge because they all charge different amounts but I do know certain stockbrokers that will charge preferential trading costs for reinvestments of dividends I mean like they'll charge you £2 if it's a dividend reinvestment I know other stockbrokers that won't and in fact the minimum you basically stuck with their minimum trade level um, so that it all depends but what you'll probably find are those stockbrokers that are making that special fee is mainly targeting certain types of investor that want to reinvest dividends and they're happy to take a loss on that because there'll be other fees elsewhere so it all depends on how you want to invest and what type of investor you are whether that platform is actually the most cost effective for you because there's those people who actually want to trade more actively and those that just want to be more passive and just buy and hold and the different platform provider that is most cost effective for those types of investor are quite different but that will that's quite a long episode and will that'll have to be for another day but it's quite range some of them will drop the fees some of them won't some of them mean that when you trade in unit trusts it's fee free others know they charge a small fee even if you're changing from unit trusts but it's a lot less than if it's a share okay so I think what we're saying is it's obviously a picture dependent on your individual circumstances and you know and we're we're not um, financial advisors so you know if people want help they can they can get that but I think it's worth certainly from the examples that you've given knowing if you're going to be investing do that simple calculation and work out what you're going to be paying because as you said it sounds like there's a various different providers out there and they will charge you different amounts being aware of that before you get into a situation where you've signed up for something that is probably costing you more than you would like it to given your circumstances for investing and that that will work for your long-term investor so we said about saving accumulating that money buying the shares or funds that you're happy to, to buy and ideally keeping them for the long term and ideally those in the long term will go up in value hopefully it all sounds a bit steady and sometimes when you've got a small amount of money to invest I hear people talking about CFDs that you know better off going and doing something in that area is it something you've come across or have an opinion on well by CFDs you're I assume you're referring to contracts for differences so and I'm I know assuming I am as well yes. <laughs> I know of them I've never personally traded in them no neither um, have I just, for, just, just to give the audience a vague idea of what they are this is effectively a private contract between two parties about uh, where an indices or a stock or any sort of price of a security where it is now and where and where 
where you think it's going to be compared to where the market is on a set date and then you pay depending on where the price is relative to your position and the, and the other party's position one of you pays amount for every point which is hundredth of a percent it is away from where you agreed it's going to be so it can go up and down by quite a lot okay. so but it's you don't it's you're not owning the underlying security it's a private bet between or contract between two people so it's more like betting right so that <clears throat> that's quite different to share ownership that we've talked about and I, and I believe there's leverage involved in this where you're not just putting your hundred pounds let's say your monthly saving amount up you can then leverage that to make that a bigger number yes I believe many of the brokers office CFDs will offer leverage with that to quite high numbers we're not talking just one or two times here we're talking maybe 10 or plus times uh, leverage on those um, so that leverage can allow you to earn lots of money or lose lots of money really fast it's not something I know a huge amount although sometimes if for those who've ever seen the big short there's a great description they gave about what a um, uh, credit default swap is and then what a, de- a synthetic credit default swap is the fact that it's just a bet or a gamble between two other parties about the price of something else yeah, it's more akin to that in many people's eyes but it's something that some people do use some people do make money out of but when you see a lot of the adverts that are um, forcing CFDs, I have to remind people that um, most people, often say 70, 75% of the people that do this, lose money. So it's not something you want to go in blind. It is quite complicated. Some people can make money. It's not simple, but it is very easy to lose lots of money very quickly if you don't know what you're doing. Okay, so there's opportunity to make money, but it sounds like you really need to do the research on that before you go anywhere near it. I'm certainly myself, <clears throat> as a mere mortal, would run fairly quick in the opposite direction, I think, with that kind of product. Well, it sounds very and it's safe to say I don't feel confident I know enough about them that I've ever gone anywhere near them yet okay so but it's an option for people if they feel they know enough about it to go and dip their toe in the water but again like we said with the the other ways of investing look at the fees look at the leverage on that one specifically and also just be aware of the risks before you go into that okay so we've gone through kind of lump sum investing drip feed investing that pound cost averaging you talked about and it's worth saying we don't promote any anything on this podcast we were just trying to give it an honest opinion so it just leaves me to say thank you to Philip and we'll see you next time on the Market Colour This programme has been presented for information and educational purposes only None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities. Nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.